Okay, a couple of announcements just to remind everyone. Saturday morning at 8 a.m., we're having our candidate meet and greet. And uh, this is a, a really important thing. I know a lot of people, they don't like to have their Saturday mornings messed up. Well, your world is messed up right now because the wrong people are in office. So um, anyway, we need to b- really be informed and knowledgeable about what is going on. It's, this is more than just them coming and making campaign promises. They're doing a lot to inform us on what is actually going on in state government, county government, city government. Uh, what's going on with the judiciary, and it's always extremely important and informative. Uh, two speakers are going to be Fred Shukart, who spoke uh, the last time, and he's a candidate for judge in the 190th district. There are 68 competitive races for judges. You will need to select each one individually. No straight party ticketing. You just have to go through and click all the red buttons or whatever. But uh, Fred, and what I mean by competitive is that in the past, maybe a third or half of the judges didn't have somebody that was running against them, so you just had a single name there. But this this means that every one of these races, you've got a Democrat and a Republican running. And then Tom Oliverson, who's the uh, who's the state rep from out in the Tomball, Magnolia, uh, Cypress, Waller, Hockley area. And uh, you'll really enjoy Tom. He is an anesthesiologist by vocation, and he serves in the, in the House. Also, I'll be leaving a week from tomorrow to go to Africa. I'm speaking in two different churches, so pray for me in pre- both preparation and traveling mercies, as well as, you know, speaking to uh, these groups, one group is about 120 or 130 miles southwest of Johannesburg in South Africa. In, I think the name of the town is Stillfontein. And then uh, I'll be speaking at another church up in Zambia in Livingstone. This is a church that Jim Myers has gone to for over 20 years. And he said, when he found out I was going there, he said, well, you've got to go to uh, Charles Church there uh, because it, uh, Jim Myers Ministries helped to uh, finance some of the building for their church, and he's gone there for many, many years, and he said, you've got people who are listening to you in his church. So this is an extension of West Houston Bible Church Ministry. And then our Israel tour, I'm working out the details for those who are emailing already and want to know a lot of things, so do I. It's kind of like Isaiah, the first part of Isaiah 31, 40, 31. Wait upon Robbie, but wait. We'll get there. Uh, it's early yet, and we've got, I've got 23 interested people, seriously interested people right now that have emailed in, so that's more than I've ever had nine months out. So this looks like it will be a, 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 a good tour. So that's the announcements. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. 
Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. So let's bow our heads together, and we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to make sure we're spiritually prepared, walking by the Spirit to be ready to study the word and internalize it. Let's pray. Our Father, we're so thankful we can come together this evening to just uh, study your word, to study a portion of your word that's not necessarily the most pleasant as we study the uh, decline and spiritual decline and rebelliousness of Israel, but it is so pertinent to what is going on in our own country, in our own lives, as witnessing the same kind of thing going on today. Know that in your grace you provided for them just as in your grace you can provide for us. And so, Father, help us to understand these trends, these cycles of civilization, the trends of history, that we may come to understand a little bit better why things happen the way they do and how everything has a spiritual cause, a spiritual source. And the only solution ultimately is a spiritual solution. For when we base our hopes, when we base our stability on sifting, shifting sands, we know that the house that is built on quicksand is going to collapse, but the house that is built on the rock, our Lord Jesus Christ, is going to have stability no matter how strong the winds blow. And we pray that we might uh, take comfort from your word. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So... I've titled this lesson, God's Grace to Rebellious Israel, but I'm going to rename it because as I was uh, coming to the end of my studies and my printer wasn't working and I was having my own little spiritual challenges there, um, I I want to go to, I'm going to go to, take us to Joshua 24 where Joshua challenges the Israelites, whom will you serve? Will you serve the gods uh, from across the river, as it were, that Abraham and his father Nahor and his relatives uh, worship before uh, Abram was saved? Or are you going to worship the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Which God are you going to serve? And so that's really the, the focal point of what goes on here is that that Israel continues to violate the oath they swore and in uh, Joshua 24 that they would they would serve the Lord and the uh, positive lesson from this is God's grace to Israel so let's just remind ourselves a little bit about judges about the book of judges in the previous lesson we concluded the Gideon cycle which ran from 6-1 to 9-57. It is the 
literary and theological center of this whole book. Because in the Gideon cycle, you see uh, the good and the bad. You see the good as, as uh, Gideon trusts in God to give him victory over uh, the oppressors, the Midianites. And then you see how in his arrogance, he turns against God and leads the nation right back into idolatry. And then you see the consequences of that in chapters uh, in chapter 10 as his illegitimate son uh, just takes takes Gideon's rebellion to another another level, and what is going on with the evil men of of Shechem, and we read at the end of chapter nine, and all the evil of the men of Shechem, God returned on their own heads. Uh, in verse 56, read also, thus God repaid the wickedness of Abimelech, which he had done to his father by killing his 70 brothers. And Abimelech had, had uh, uh, died in verse 55. And then God also brought justice on the evil of the men of Shechem in verse 52. But frequently when we see things in our life where we wonder, why isn't God doing something God's timing isn't our timing, and he knows when the best time is for that judgment to come on those that deserve it. And you don't need to make a mental list right now of those whom you think deserve it, because we all know who most of those people are going to be. But God is going to bring, there will be justice, and as Abraham said, when... um, uh, when he is conversing with God in Judges 19, as God has told him that what he is going to do to in bringing judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah, Abraham articulated a universal principle. He said, "Shall not the God, uh, shall shall not God in His justice, or shall not God do the right thing? Shall not our righteous God do the right thing?" And he always will, because he is a just and righteous God. And so the problem in in Israel is that they have abandoned God and they have rejected him. And so we have these statements in four verses in Judges that there was no king in Israel. Judges 17.6, Judges 18.1, in those days there's no king in Israel. In Judges 19.1, there was no king in Israel. Judges 21.25, there was no king in Israel. There was no king in Israel, not because God had not authorized a king, but God was the king, and they had rejected that. And the consequence of rejecting God is that you have to look somewhere else for your values. You have to look somewhere else for how you're going to understand right or wrong. And everywhere else you look, and that every place you attempt to find values is something that is changeable. It's changeable and it's changing. And so we cannot put our values, our absolutes, our understanding of reality on something that is mutable, something that is changing, something that is eternally unstable. And it can only be on God of this Bible who is eternally Stable, He is immutable. And the result is when you put the creature in place of the creator, then who's going to be the boss? Who's going to make the decisions as to what is right or wrong? 
and the result is that everyone does what is right in their own eyes. It just goes to moral relativism, and I think it's so ironic. Sadly, the irony is lost on those who should see it more than any others, and that is with this movement, Black Lives Matter, that has as its core raison d'etre, its reason for existence, is to have justice for those who are perceived to be uh, overlooked in justice, and that is the, the black community. And uh, we have read numerous headlines recognizing that the founding leadership has absconded with much of the money and to, to discover that they are doing what's right in their eyes because they cannot appeal to an external standard of justice because for them there is no external standard of justice. And so it, it reveals that what a sham the whole mo- movement is uh, because they, the, their concept of justice appears to be what's right for them. And so they have bought you know, millions of dollars in real estate and absconded with money and and there is no justice for the black community from those that many of them look to for justice. When there's when God is not the ultimate authority, then there is no decent authority to replace him. And we see that illustrated in the episode with Gideon and his bastard son Abimelech. So now we come to the next cycle. We're looking at the outline of Judges in this slide, and we've seen that the introduction summarized these cycles. And we'll go back to some of the verses in Chapter 2 before we're finished this evening because what is said here about what is happening echoes almost word for word but in a much more detailed manner than what was said in chapter chapter 2 and then the illustration of the that cycle those cycles are in the uh, increasing paganization of the leadership uh, you have uh, and the author has arranged these in a way to support his thesis and that is that when there is no god in israel uh, everyone does what's right in their own eyes uh, and so he goes through this. We've seen Othniel and Ehud, Shamgar, Deborah, Gideon, and now we're going to be introduced to two of the so-called minor judges, uh, Tola and Yair, in uh, the first part of chapter 10 as a lead-up to the discipline, the next cycle of discipline that comes and the judgeship of Jephthah. And what we've seen now is that under Gideon, they've really hit almost rock bottom. I think they really hit rock bottom uh, with uh, with both Jephthah and, and Samson, but it's not much further down. They're, they've hit bottom already, and you just see how bad it is. And they, uh, you look at this and you realize that how how utterly chaotic it was in Israel at that time, how unstable it must have been, and how fearful the people must have been with these various invading armies. And 
the reason is because of their rejection of God. And so they looked out on a very chaotic, unstable world. We look out on a cable, on a uh, unstable, chaotic world, and we see the same kinds of reactions among the majority of our friends, neighbors, and family. Is that they they have no idea what to do or why they're in this kinds of situation. And we hear more and more of corruption in the halls of Congress and among leaders, among uh, state governments and state leaders. And trust me, we haven't heard 90% of it. And we can, I can say that because I understand what's going on and I understand the sin nature and how when it is not dealt with at a personal level in terms of a person's walk with the Lord, then you see the absence of integrity across the board. And that's why we can, I can say that, that I believe that, that the level of corruption that is out there is far beyond anything that we can possibly uh, imagine right now. And it, it has to be for the results that we see to be, to be there. You don't see the kind of things going on uh, right now uh, without a level of corruption in leadership. So we see the cycle that goes on of disobedience to God, and then God brings discipline upon the nation as he should, because this discipline is outlined in Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28, that this is what God is going to do by covenant. If you disobey me, if you worship other gods, then I'm going to bring these uh, chaotic circumstances into your lives. I'm going to restrain the weather. I'm going to bring foreign armies in. Uh, You are going to be defeated and subjugated. And ultimately, the final stage of discipline is to be uh, removed from the land that God promised them as the place of blessing. And yet, they don't seem, they don't get the message and they don't seem to care. Uh, but eventually they scream out to God as a result of the discipline, and then God delivers them. Uh, their screaming out to God isn't a sign of repentance. Often you will read people who assume that is what's happened, but it's not stated in the text that they haven't turned back to God. They're, they're, they're like kids. You punish them, and they're sorry they got caught, and they're sorry they got punished, but they're not sorry they did what they did. So you have God in his grace uh, delivering them, and then we just go through it again. And so there's each one of these cycles that's going on through each of the judges, and we have two major judges left to go, Jephthah and Samson. And then, of course, we have the very bizarre uh, appendices that come up uh, at following following Samson, and it, you know, it just gets more and more bizarre as you go through this. And there's a lesson there for us that you look out on what's happening in our culture right now, and you think, "I never thought this would happen." That 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 parents 
so many parents would be willing to subjugate their their children to the abuse of, of medical and physical uh, torture to change them from one sex to another sex and the arrogance that lies behind that it, it i thank god we live in a state where we have a governor and a lieutenant governor and many members of the state house who affirm that that is child abuse and it is some of the most egregious uh, child child abuse and so we recognize that that it's going to get more bizarre. Fifteen years ago, would you have thought we would see all of these things happening? I will predict that unless the Lord returns or changes things in ten years, it's going to be even more bizarre because that's what happens in these cycles. So we come to chapter 10, and chapter 10 is going to introduce us to two uh, judges who are called minor judges. Uh, and then, but this is a setup. It's, we have to understand the literary structure that is going on in these chapters. The section that t- takes us into the Jephthah narrative begins in chapter 10, verse 1, and it extends down to the end of chapter 12, which is verse 15. We don't get to anything in those chapters that prepares us. I mean, for the most part, there's one little thing that prepares us, and I'll point it out when we get there, but that prepares us for Samson. Samson comes in verse, verse, or excuse me, in chapter 13. And so we have, as it were, the bracketing of Jephthah's judgeship by two judges at the beginning and three at the end. The first judge, and each of these judges just get about three verses each. Uh, A couple of them just have two verses. And people say, I bet, I'll bet this too. I bet when you read through judges, when you're doing your read through the Bible in a year, that you just kind of skip over them and say, well, God doesn't say much about them. But God said something about them. So that means it's important because all Scripture is breathed out by God. So even though you look at something and you say, well, I can't imagine why that's all that significant. There's just three quick things said about them. You look at the first one, Tola. There's five verbs that describe him, and then we're on to the next guy. Well, let's just get to the really good stuff and get down to Jephthah. But... If we believe every word is breathed out by God and the word of God is without error, then there's a reason for this. And we may have to beat our heads against the wall a few times, but we have to figure out why does God think this is important? What is, what is the function of these guys? So we see this, this setup here. We have Tola. His name means worm. So we'll call him worm. And then we have Yair, and Yair, the Yah is the first syllable of Yahweh, so he has a name that relates to God. And the last part, Ir, is the word for light. And so it can mean Yah is light, or it could be may Yah enlighten you. 
So he has a, a name that indicates something spiritually positive for him. Then we come to Swifty at the end. That's Ibzan. And he's covered in Judges 12, 8 through 10. And Elon, whose name means oak, Judges 12, 11 to 12. And Abdon, which means service. So these guys are covered very briefly, but what they do is they, they come in and, it's, and you see that with their judgeships, there's periods of stability. There's periods of normality. There's periods where there is not a foreign enemy that's com- coming into the land, and that is a picture of the grace of God in providing for stability and uh, prosperity for the nation during those uh, those periods of time. So we come down to, to Judges chapter ten, uh, verse one, and a couple uh, a couple of the other things I want to point out by way of introduction to this section is that as we look at these five judgeships, there's something missing. What's missing? There's no mention of God. No mention of God. Now, that is, God is conspicuous for his absence. The absence of God's mention is usually in Scripture an indication that he's absent from the thoughts of the people. There is a, an exception. There's another aspect to the non-mention of God's name or God's presence, and that's seen in the book of Esther. God's name is not mentioned in Esther, and that was a reason for a lot of debate among the rabbis in the uh, period between the Old Testament and New Testament as they were determining which books were canonical, which books were of, uh, should be included in uh, the books that have been revealed by God. And so because God's name is mentioned in Esther, there was, there was concern there. But what we see in Esther is something we also see in, in these judgeships in Israel and in some of these sections where God doesn't seem to be present at all, and that is that, that God's unseen hand, his providential protection of his people, in Esther, there's no special revelation about how to deal with the problem of Haman and his anti-Semitic plot to have most of the Jews murdered. Uh, there's no uh, direct instructions on how to uh, protect themselves. Uh, all they have is the word of God and prayer. And so they don't have, even have a completed Old, uh, Old Testament canon yet. So they have an insufficient scripture, as it were, because it's only partial. But they know what they know, and so they do, uh, they do, uh, pray. So there is evidence of that in their lives. Now the same is true here in Judges 10, except we find the people aren't at all interested in Yahweh. They're not interested in His Word. Uh, they are hostile towards God, and that continues. They have abandoned God. The, the words that are used here are words we've studied before back in the introduction, and they, they are words that emphasize 
that they've abandoned God and they have sold themselves into the slavery of idolatry. It's a very, very strong, uh, strong language. And um, then they finally suffer enough to where they turn back to God and they're going to confess uh, their sin in verse 10 and also in verse 15. Uh, but it one wonders how how sincere they are. Sincerity doesn't matter in its efficaciousness, only in its longevity. What I mean by that is we can confess our sins to God and he'll forgive us, but if we're not sincere, we're not going to stay in fellowship or continue walking by the Spirit for very long because we haven't dealt with the underlying problems, the underlying spiritual problems, and and that's what's happen, happening there. And in comparison, we see today the same kind of thing happening in our nation. I go to various websites, some of which I, I don't, agree with a lot of things, and I think that the people who are writing some of these things are, are have their own problems, but they do report on the things that are being said by pastors in so-called evangelical churches, and it is amazing the garbage that is in the pulpits of this nation and the things that are said. And uh, it's just uh, and and the number of pastors in what hitherto have been thought thought of as somewhat Bible-based conservative churches, who are teaching their congregations that Jesus affirmed homosexuality, and that homosexual marriage is supported by the Bible, and many other things uh, on those li- those same lines. And, uh, you know, I, I just, uh, it's, it's just appalling. But we have always, we meaning the Church of Jesus Christ, has always had to deal with enemies within and enemies without. We have those within the church who have been conformed by external pressures to the world, and so they bring those values with them uh, to the church, and then they want to see use those values to deal with how the church is led, governed, and what they support. And so that's always a problem. And then outside the church, we have a pagan culture at large that is pressing, um, pressing the boundaries, um, destroying the boundaries, removing all boundaries just for the pure sake of of giving full reign to their sin nature. If you pay attention to many of the things that have been said by celebrities on uh, their Facebook pages and in social media, if you pay attention to things that have have been said by uh, politicians and media people, uh, the claim today is that those who are on the right are against democracy. What you need to realize is democracy has been redefined as people being able to do, democracy and freedom are people able to do whatever they want to do with no moral limitations. It's pure antinomianism. And so uh, 
You know, under Roe Ro v. Wade, there were restrictions on abortion, and now what you have is the, the left is so incensed about the fact that the court made a perfectly rational, legal, historically accurate decision saying there's no abortions mentioned in the Constitution, so we can't, we can't support that. And the left has just flipped out, and so now they they want abortion up to and even in many cases after birth, which is infanticide. So it's it's gotten bizarre in their anger and resentment towards those who have held to the meaning of the Constitution and Scripture. They have gone even further out of out of bounds in their their reactions. And so we're facing the same kinds of things that that the Jews faced. When we get down in here, it's talking about the fact that they, verse 6, talks about they serve the Baalim and the Ashtarots, the gods of Syria, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the people of Ammon, and the gods of the Philistines. And they abandoned the Lord and did not serve him. Now, what, what that tells you is that they are, they're sacrificing infants in the arms of Chemosh and in the arms of Moloch, and they are committing infanticide as well as uh, whatever they did for abortion. They, they have more things going on that we can't imagine yet. In the town square, they would have idols to Moloch or to Chemosh that were basically a, 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 a furnace. And the infant or the child would be placed in the arms of the god which rested over the inferno. And they would be immolated alive whenever they had their basic festivals. It's not quite as bad as what the Aztecs were doing under... Um, Matizuma, uh, where at one time they, they went, they had so many sacrifices, it was day and night for weeks until blood just streamed down the stairs of, of the pyramids. People are evil. And there, when, when there is no restraint of law and no restraint of the Bible, their evil knows no bounds. And then God will destroy them, as he did with the Aztecs and as he did with the, these ancient civilizations. And so this is uh, what we see going on then is what we're approaching even today. So we come to our first judge, and I'm going to go back to that slide with the map in a minute. It begins now, after Abimelech died, Tola, the son of Pua, the son of Dodo, a man of Issachar, arose to save Israel, and he lived in Shemir in the hill country of Ephraim. And he judged Israel 23 years, then he died, and he was buried in Shemir. Hasn't your heart been blessed? Well, let's think about what's going on here. This is after Abimelech died. It's some time later. And his name is Tola, which means worm. Now, and a lot of times we don't know if this was like their birth name 
or if this was a nickname that was given to them later on. Uh, we do know that that happened many times, that, that they had five, six, seven names, like the monarchs in England have five, six, seven names. One name they choose when they are crowned king is their um, is the, their, their, the name of their monarchy, uh, their name of their rule that they take as their kingly, kingly name, their reignal name. So after Abimelech died, Tola, and why do they put this in? It's the son of Pua, the son of Dodo, a man of Issachar. And so people read past that and they go, what weird names they had. Let's, let's keep moving. I'll take another sip of coffee. But the, what, what they're doing here is that the original readers of this knew who those people were and what their name, why, and who, why they were significant. And they understood that by identifying Tola in terms of his father, his grandfather, and his tribe, that this is not somebody who's made up in some sort of mythology, but this is someone who you can go look up the birth records and family records in the temple, and he was a true-to-life historical figure. And so they're showing that the Bible is not mythological. It's not some sort of fable, but that this is a real, these are real people, real historical event. So we're told about his family. We're told about where he lived. He lived in Shamir in the hill country of Ephraim, or Ephraim anglicized. Ephraim is uh, part of Samaria. We'll look at a map in just a minute. And then the length of his judgeship was 23 years, and he died and was buried in, in Shamir. So let me back up to the map. What I did here was I took the broad map that uh, comes out of Logos Bible Software, which is very good, and it shows the tribal names here, Zebulon and Asher, uh, Naphtali. Uh, you have half-tribe of Manasseh across the Jordan Sea. This is the Sea of Galilee. This blue line going south is the Jordan River. This is So this is the Jordan River Valley. And this is the Dead Sea. See, if you don't get anything out of Bible class you're going to at least understand a little bit about the geography and where Israel is located and some some places there. So you have the Sea of Galilee in the north, and you have the Dead Sea in the south, and then you have the Jordan River going, going down south. The western side is called a Cisjordan. C-I-S is the prefix because everything is written from the perspective of Jerusalem. So this is basically on our side of the Jordan. Then those who are on the other side of the Jordan, that's across the Jordan. So that's Transjordan. So the kingdom of Jordan, the country of Jordan that is across the river, that is the Hashemite because Abdullah is Abdullah II of the Hashemite tribe. He's the Hashem, it's the Hashemite, uh, it's the Hashemite kingdom of, it was Transjordan for a while, and now it is just Jordan. Why did they call it Transjordan? Because after the 1948 war for independence that Israel had, Jordan, the Jordanian troops captured 
this area I'm outlining here that basically takes in the hill country of Samaria, and that was part of Jordan. So you had to distinguish between Transjordan and Cisjordan. And when you talk about the West Bank, it's the West Bank of what? Of the kingdom of Jordan. So when you use the term West Bank, you're affirming the legitimacy of Jordan's rule over that part of Israel. There's only one problem with that. There wasn't a single nation in the world between 1948 and 1967 that legitimized and supported Jordan's uh rule over that part of Israel, which is a historical Samaria. So this, this is, um, this is, and what runs down the center here is called the way of the patriarchs, and you can still hike it anytime you want, and that's the path that Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, Jacob all walked. Uh, so you have uh, the, the, um, area of Syria here, you have all of these are that you have East Manasseh here, West Manasseh here. These are the different tribal names. And then uh, Ephraim down here. And Benjamin is the last one. So everything above are the 10 tribes. And then south you have, uh, you have Judah. And they, they've basically taken in Simeon. So that becomes part of Judah, and Simeon just has intermarried with Judah. So that, that gives you your basic geography. But you can't read all those little signs, and this is a map of the, of the judges. So I blew up the center part of it, expanded it, so maybe some of you can read it. But it shows where the locations of each of the different uh, different judges. So up here it says Gideon from a family from the tribe of Manasseh. He was associated with the Herod Spring in the towns of Sukkot and Penuel. So that's up, this is Ophrah. And you have Mount Tabor and all of this. Now here, what we're talking about is Tola. And he's from the tribe of Ephraim, according to Judges 10.1. And so he lived in this town, Shamir. And this was where he lived, and it is where he died. And he he did not have anything dramatic happen in his life. That means there were no invading armies. He didn't have to go out and go to war with the Midianites or the Moabites or the um, Philistines or anybody else. So it's a time of peace. And he, he lives here in, in Shamir. We read, uh, Tola, the son of Pua, the son of Dodo, a man of Issachar, arose to save or to deliver Israel better. A lot of times in, in historical literature, the word that uh, Yasha, which is where you get the name Yeshua or Yashua, Yoshua, which is Joshua, the root is the verb to save. But it can mean just to deliver from enemies. And so, with about 98% of the time in the Psalms, it should be translated as deliberate. It is not talking about soteriological justification. It's talking about physical deliverance from a circumstance, a situation, an enemy, or an army, something like that. And so that's, he doesn't have to go out and, um, and deliver Israel. Uh, from enemies, he, there's no war mentioned or anything, but he delivers Israel in the sense that he is going to judge them, and that's what is seen in verse 2. He lived in Shamir, 
So this is a historical town. We know where it was, and it is within the hill country of Ephraim. And we're told in verse 2, he judged Israel 23 years. He died, and he was buried in Shamir. Now, what's interesting about him uh, is that Worm uh, is a very well-known name in his tribal lineage. We read in Genesis 46.13 that the sons of Issachar were Tola, Puva, Job, and Shimron. So these are the four sons of Issachar. Issachar was one of the 12 sons of, of Isaac, or excuse me, of Jacob. And then in Numbers 26-23, we have another reference. The sons of Issachar, according to their families, were of Tola, the family of the Tolaites, of Pua, the family of the uh, Punites. So we have these different uh, genealogies that locate these people in space-time history. They're real people. They were, they were important. So the original readers would have understood a lot of that and say, oh, I, I, I know some of their descendants. Now, we ought to pay attention to the verbs here. In Judges 10.1, we read that he arose. That's the first thing that's said. He arose to save, the second thing. He lived, so he arose, he saved, he, li- or he delivered rather, he lived, uh, and he judged, and he was buried. <sighs> that means he had a pretty normal life. Things were pretty stable. That, that, uh, in light of what's happened with Gideon and what happened with Abimelech, this is wonderful. The people had a had a breather. This was a great opportunity for them to relax. It's an orderly time. It's a time probably of some prosperity because you can't do much in all the chaos. And um, this was uh, this is the results of his judgeship. Then we come to the next judge, and this is Yair. The J is a transliteration. It should be always, it should be a Y. It's the Hebrew letter Yud. You know, when Jesus said um, no jot or tittle will pass away, he didn't say jot. He said Yud. And so that's uh, all these J's, uh, Yahweh, um, uh, Yehoshaphat, Jezebel, all of those should be with wise. So this is Yair the Gileadite arose and judged Israel for 22 years. What's funny, what's happened to me over the years, I go to Israel, I know people with all these names, and you pronounce them correctly. And so it's really hard to come back and read the Bible and not pronounce the names the way they're supposed to be pronounced, because you know Davids, and you know Amos, and you know uh, Yairs, and Yaels. So uh, after him, Yair the Gileadite arose, judged Israel 22 years. So uh, uh, Tola had judged 23 years, Yair is going to judge for 22 years. Notice they're clearly stated that they are judging Israel. They're not just some some local tribal leader. 
uh, 22 and 23 is 45. And he had 30 sons who rode on 30 donkeys, and they had 30 cities in the land of Gilead. Now, what's important about that? Well, this is important because it also talks about his prosperity. He had 30 sons, and they lived to adulthood, 30 sons that did live to adulthood. And they had 30 donkeys, which meant that that was, that was um, you know, your, your Ford pickup truck of the day. And so they were able to afford the, the donkeys. And they had 30 cities in the land of Gilead that are called uh, that are called Havot Yair to this day. But they're not called Havot Yair because of him. He's just named for the Yair they're named for. We'll see that in just a minute. And Yair died and was buried in Kamen. So Numbers 32.41 talks about a person for whom he was named, Yair the son of Manasseh, who Manasseh or Menasheh was one of the uh, 12 sons of, of uh, Isaac, I mean of Jacob. Also, Jair, the son of Manasseh, went and took its small towns and called them Havot Yair. Deuteronomy 3.14 repeats the story. Yair, the son of Manasseh, took all the regions of Argov as far as the border of the Geshurites and the Maakathites and called Bashan. That's the Golan Heights. That's what we refer to as the Golan Heights. After his own name, Havot Yair to this day. So here's our map. Over here is Shechem again, just to give you an orientation point. Way down here is Jerusalem, and this is just to the southeast of the Sea of Galilee, and it's called Havot Yair, but it goes all the way up. All this territory here was part of East Manasseh, the tribe of Manasseh, and that's up on the Golan Heights. And what's fascinating is when you are on the west side of the Sea of Galilee and you wake up in the morning and you're fortunate enough to have uh, a scenic view of the Sea of Galilee and what's across the Sea of Galilee, you just see this high escarpment that runs the length of the Sea of Galilee, which is why it's called the Golan Heights. And back during the period from 1948 to 1967, uh, the Syrians controlled the Golan Heights, and they just took it upon themselves to randomly lob artillery shells across the Sea of Galilee at all the Jewish or Israeli settlements that were there. And you never knew when an artillery round was going to be coming until you heard it whistling. So that was one reason that Israel did not want to give up the go or did not want to uh, or has not wanted to give up the Golan Heights. And one reason they captured wanted to capture it in the in the um, uh, six six day war was because they wanted to have control of the high ground uh, so that they would not be subject to that anymore. But that's that's the area that's referred to as Bashan. Uh, so we read this statement here, uh, he's got 30 sons, rode on 30 donkeys, and they had um, uh, 30 cities. So that this, this picture is one of a uh, time of peace and prosperity. It's not a time of war. It's a time of, of stability as well. 
So this is important because it's setting up a twofold contrast, a contrast with what happened during Abimelech and all of the chaos and instability there and what will happen uh, shortly as we get into the last part of the chapter with the invasion of the Ammonites. And we're also going to be told that God is going to bring the Philistines in verse 11 Uh, As a result of their disobedience, the Lord said to the children of Israel, Did I not deliver you from the Egyptians and from the Amorites and from the people of Ammon and from the Philistines? So there's going to be an attack from the Ammonites from from the east, and Philistines are down here along the coast, and they're going to be attacking this way. So Jephthah's going to deal with the Ammonites, and Samson is going to deal with the Philistines. So then we come to Judges 10.6. You read this and you think, I've read this before. Pretty much, you have. Then the children of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord. What is this fifth verse, same as the first? The children of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals and the Asherah, it's literally Ashtarot. It's an OT feminine ending in Hebrew. The gods of Syria, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the people of Ammon, the gods of the Philistines, and they forsook the Lord and did not serve him. And the anger of the Lord burned against Israel, and he sold them into the hands of the Philistines and into the hands of the sons of Ammon. So in verse 7, we are told that this is going to be the problem, the Philistines and the Ammonites. It's foreshadowing. Now, when we look at um, at this passage, first of all, we see the word again, which I didn't underline. Again, it's the word on the left, yasaf, and yasaf means to add to something or to do it again. There's a very first, very famous person in the Old Testament whose name is based on this. His name is Yosef. God had added another child to Jacob and given a child to Rachel. So he added to his children. So the children of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord. And evil in the scripture is a word that doesn't just refer to something bad or wicked. You often hear people talk about evil. In fact, after 9-11, President George W. Bush referred to those who instigated it as evildoers. I think that just was, that's what set off the left because he, he believed in absolute evil, and they didn't. And he was appealing to an absolute standard, and that drove them nuts. So we have here, Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord. And how is it defined? They served the Baalim and the Ashtoreth. They served them. It's idolatry. That Most of the time, that is how uh, evil is defined in the Old Testament. And what's interesting is you have this plural. We put S's on the end. The Baalim, I-M ending is the masculine ending. And OT in Hebrews, the, uh, the uh, plural ending, the Ashtoreth. And then it's, uh, uh, it, I think this is almost appositional. 
that is. The gods of Syria, the Elohim. Let's, let's try to include some Hebrew. The Elohim of Syria. The Elohim, plural, the gods. The Elohim of Sidon, the Elohim of Moab, the gods of the people of, the Elohim of the people of Ammon and the Elohim of the Philistines. And they forsook the Lord and did not serve him. I spent some time today wading through an article uh, that uh, D- Dr. Petrovich sent me this morning. I said, I've got several things on the gods of the Canaanites, and I wondered if he had anything new or interesting. And most of the stuff that you read is written from scholars who are writing from a uh, pluralistic uh, viewpoint, a, a, an evolution of religion viewpoint, so that you actually have the, the polytheism of the Canaanites uh, it eventually evolves into the monotheism of the Israelites. And they often say, well, you can't really distinguish the gods of the Canaanites from the, the gods of Israel. Well, if you're looking at the period of Judges, no kidding. That's because the Israelites are worshiping the gods of these other, uh, other people. But also there's a fluidity uh, you can read about Greek mythology or Roman mythology, and there's a, a certain stability to the, the gods on Mount Olympus. Uh, uh, Uranus is the chief god, and then he's got his uh, son Jupiter comes along who pretty much overtakes him. The same thing happens with the Canaanite pantheon. You have El is the head god, and uh, his number two is Baal. But Baal is a lot sexier and flashier and more powerful, so he sort of overtakes El uh, that gets sent to the old folks' home. Same thing with Uranus, and so you hear about Zeus. Well, by the time you get to Rome and Greece, they sort of have a stability to their pantheon. But you get down into... Uh, the ancient Near East in the Levant, the whole area on the on the eastern end of the Mediterranean, and in many ways that whole area was just generally referred to as as Canaan, uh, even though that there, there's a more narrow sense of of that term. But you've got the the it includes uh, the Syria Phoenician people, so you have those who are in Tyre and Sidon, and they have. Uh, they have different versions of these same gods and goddesses, and they will call them Baals hyphen something else, like Baals of phone, or each town has their own Baal, their own version of Baal, and their own version of the feminine goddess uh, Ashtara. And so that's why the scriptures very accurately refers to it, to them in, in the plural. Because every town or village had a different version of Baal or the Astra, and they had different uh, mythologies. They had, they had slightly different versions of, of the various uh, Canaanite myths. And so I was wading my way through that article today, and, and that's about all you need to learn from that article. Uh, and then, and you get into the gods of Moab, and they had this, basically the same gods and goddesses, but slightly different names. Okay, so you have, uh, Chemosh is the, the, uh, god that is, uh, roughly equivalent to Baal in some places, and to Moloch in other places. And you have the, uh, gods of the Ammonites, and the gods of the Philistines, and, 
Uh, Dagon is the God we know of because we read about uh, the Ark of the Covenant being captured by uh, the Philistines in the first part of 1 Samuel. And the Ark of the Covenant is put in the temple of Dagon. They come in the next morning, and Dagon is bowing down, uh, worshiping the Ark of the Covenant, worshiping Yahweh. So they they get all upset, and they stand uh, Dagon up, and then they come back the next day, and he's bowing down, but his hands and feet have been cut off, so he can't uh, be stood up again. Uh, but Dagon was also worshipped in the area of what is today northern Israel and up into Syria. So there's a there's this fluidity of all of these different gods and goddesses, and they have their different hometowns and everything. So the the scriptures accurate here. The the Baals and the Asherah and their forms of the gods of Syria, Sidon, Moab, Ammon, and the Philistines. But what Israel is doing is what's important. They have they are serving the Baalim, serving these for, false gods. That's the word on the left. That is avad, which is a word to serve or to be a slave. The same word can refer to either one. That's why we have problems because of, of slavery in the history of the United States. We don't like it when Paul says, I'm a sl- servant of the Lord Jesus Christ, doulos. Doulos also is the Greek word, and it means servant or slave. But we don't like saying, I'm a slave of God. But we don't have a problem when Paul uses that same word and says, you're a slave of your sin nature. Oh, yeah, we can relate to that. But it's it's the same word. So we have our own problems with that but that's what's happening they're enslaving themselves to the Baalim and the Asherot and then the flip side of that is they are forsaking or abandoning Yahweh and they did not serve him they are they are breaking the covenant God made with them but God is faithful and he's going to uh, continue to be faithful to that covenant we find this same language in Judges 3.7. So the children of Israel did evil in the sight of Yahweh. They forgot Yahweh their Elohim and served the Baalim and the Asherot. Okay, these are the same words that are used in in uh, Judges 10 verse, verse 6. They served the Baalim and the Asherot. Then we go back to Judges 2.11. Then the sons of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. The same word that for evil. Um, it's indicating the idolatry, the abandonment of God. They uh, did, says they did not know. They did evil. They enslaved themselves to the Baalim. Verse 12 goes on to say, and they forsook, they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt and followed other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them and bowed themselves down to them. Thus, they provoked the Lord to anger. Now, that's an important word we're going to look at in just a minute. So they abandoned the Lord and enslaved themselves to Baal, Baalim and the Astro. So we, let me skip that slide. This is the, yeah, I'll go to uh, Joshua 24.1. Joshua 24.1, we're told that, that after the conquest, Joshua gathers all the tribes of Israel to Shechem and called for the elders of Israel, for their heads, for their judges, and for their officers, and they presented themselves before God. So all of the uh, leaders come before God. And Joshua said to the people, 
Thus says Yahweh Elohim of Israel, your fathers, including Terah, the father of Abraham, and the father of Nahor, Abraham's brother, dwelt on the other side of the river, the Euphrates, in old times, and they served other Elohim, other gods. Then I took your father Abraham from the other side of the river, led him throughout all the land of Canaan, and multiplied his descendants and gave him Isaac. To Isaac I gave Jacob and Esau. To Esau I gave the mountains of Seir to possess, that southeastern part of uh, Israel and across the Jordan. But Jacob and his children went down to Egypt. Also I sent Moses and Aaron, and I plagued Egypt. According to what I did among them, afterward I brought you out. So he's reminding them of what he has done, how God has been faithful to his covenant in the past. Then we come to verse uh, 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 14 through 16. Now, therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and truth, and put away the Elohim which your father served on the other side of the river and in Egypt. Serve the Lord. Now, why would he say that if they're all... Strict monotheists worshiping Yahweh because they've still got their teraphim in their saddlebags, as it were. Uh, If it seems evil to you to serve the Lord, choose for yourself this day whom you will serve. That's a question we need to to decide every morning when we wake up. Who am I going to serve today? Am I going to serve God or me? Uh, choose for yourself this day whom you will serve, whether the gods which your father served that were on the other side of the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Now, how did the people respond? Well, give us some time. No, they enthusiastic, emotional response. So the people answered and said, far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. Why do I say it's an emotional response? Because they didn't keep it. It was ephemeral. They, they had sincerity, but they were not, they did not have perseverance. One example before we finish up, this is the Misha Stila. You got this uh, picture from Lagos. The Stila was erected by the Moabite king Misha to commemorate his various achievements as king. One of these victories was achieved uh, his war with Israel in his war for Israel during the reign of Omri in 2 Kings 3, 4 through 27. The inscription also mentions the divine name after his victory at Nebo. Misha had all the vessels of Yahweh removed and set before Chemosh, the god of the Moabites. And this is what it says. I am Misha, son of Chemosh. So Chemosh is the equivalent of, of Moloch, the one for, to whom they sacrifice their children. King of Moab, the Dibonite. My father reigned over Moab 30 years, and I reigned after my father. Now I built this high place to Chemosh in Karha, a high place of salvation, because he saved me from all the kings and because he made me victorious against all my enemies. Omri was king of Israel, and he afflicted Moab many days because Chemosh was angry with his land. Then his son succeeded him. And who was Omri's son? Ahab. Uh, And then his son succeeded him, and he also said, I will afflict Moab. In my days he said so, but I was victorious against him and his house, and Israel was utterly destroyed forever. Not quite. Little exaggeration there. 
Now, Omri had taken possession of all the land of Medeba. Some of you were, have been to Medeba. They've got this mosaic there on the ground that's an ant that's of an ancient map of Israel. It's not all there, but it's fascinating to see. Uh, all the land of Medeba, which is Moab, and had dwelled in it during his time and half the days of his son, 40 years, but Chemosh dwelt in it in my time. So that just gives uh, support to a lot of things that the Scripture says. And now we read in Judges 10.7. You know, I'm going to stop here. We'll get to 10.7 next time and God's response. Father, we thank you for this time to look at this, and we see your grace. We see that even in the time of the judges, there was times of peace and stability. But, Father, there was always this problem with their rebellion against you. And, Father, we haven't escaped that in this country. If we're honest in our study of the history of Christianity, we see that the rebelliousness towards biblical Christianity began, the seeds of much of it began during the Enlightenment in the 1600s, and that seed was watered and fertilized and expanded through the uh, 18th century, and it started to uh, grow and blossom in the beginning of the 19th century. And today we are reaping the poisonous fruits of that plant, and it is going to destroy this nation unless you intervene. And, Father, we pray for your grace upon us that we might see a change of mind, a change of heart in this nation turning to you, for you are the only hope. And, Father, we also pray that if there is no change, that we might be steadfast, that we might persevere in our obedience to you and continue to be faithful witnesses uh, no matter what comes. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.